I like to replace judgment with curiosity. You tell me your story. I'm going to listen without interruption. I'm going to lead with my empathy and then decide what I think. Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Lynn Nottage. Welcome to The Lost Traveler. I'm your host, Henry Cameron Allen, and I feel very honored today to welcome a friend of, gosh, at least 14 years now, Dr. Erica Goldblatt-Hyatt. Um, she is a uh, university professor, an administrator, a private therapist with over a decade's worth of experience in the field of clinical social work at both the pediatric and adult levels. Uh, she is currently the assistant director of the Doctorate of Social Work at Rutgers University and many, many other things besides. Welcome, Erica. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. I am so grateful for our friendship. And yeah, I can't believe it's been 14 years. That's that's crazy. Time has passed both incredibly quickly and very slowly. It's very true. And isn't that the way? Yes. It's uh it's the world that we're in uh, right now. You also, in, in all this time, you published a book. I uh, did. Yeah, it was. Grieving um, for the Sibling You Lost. Yes, right? yes. Grieving for the Sibling You Lost, which was based on my doctoral work. And I was one of those kind of weird animals that got my doctorate very early. I was the, the youngest person in my cohort. I only had a couple years of uh, social work experience under my belt. But um I worked in oncology with uh, children that were diagnosed with brain tumors and, you know, really was a, a witness to the amazing process of those families as they tried to cope. And what I noticed was there were teen siblings that had a lot of needs that at a really unique time in their lives when they're asking, who am I? Um, you know, they're facing the the life-threatening illness of a sibling. And so out of out of that social work experience came my doctoral work on this question of at a stage in your life where you're becoming who you want to be or you think you want to be, what happens? How does the impact of uh, the death of a brother or sister affect your identity? And so um, I was recruited by a self-help publication, New Harbinger, and they said, you know, we don't think there's anything like that out there. Um, would you like to turn your doctoral work into a book? And I said, sure. And so then I became um, a published author. And, you know, because it was so unexpected for me, the goal, of course, is never to, to make money, but was to help people. And it's been really satisfying to hear from teens and their families and to know that the book is being used and that it's it's helping people because they're they're going through enough. You know, death is hard enough. And so if there's any way that I can help alleviate or address some of that pain, it's been a real honor and blessing to do that. Well, it's garnered very high stars on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out. And if you click Erica's name in the description, it will connect you directly to the book. So if you do have or if you are a teen who has lost a sibling or if you have a teen who has lost a sibling uh, or if you know a teen who's lost a sibling, this book is really a, a beautiful guide and uh, you should get it for them. It's even available on Kindle. So there's your little plug. Thanks. <laughs> um, I, I feel like we're all teens again in a way. It, doesn't it feel right now like we are we're grounded and we can't go out and party with our friends. 
friends, and we're all faced with this question of, well, gosh, you know, who am I now? Mm. Who am I now? And and who do I want to be? Um, in in the life skills world, we're we're always reflecting on how can I be better in the next moment than I am in this one or in past moments. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we're we're talking about sort of the personal narrative, and how how can we go about questioning that or reviewing our biography and sorting out the wheat from the chaff, as they say? Oh, it's such a great question, and and this has been a focus of a lot of my my work is that question of identity, and I think it's an existential, it's like a, a human question along with kind of like what happens where we, when we die is, is that question of who am I? And, and along with who am I is kind of the affiliated questions of what's my legacy? What's my purpose? And these are questions that we do start to ask in adolescence um, as we start to understand that, you know, we are part of a bigger world and, and kind of trying to understand who we are in the context of that world and, and, and what are our passions and, and what are our goals? And, you know, I, I should say this is also a uniquely um, first world problem for many. You know, we see it a lot more in the, the Western world where people uh, really value identity and and less communal orientations. And I I think there's also something to be said about community identity, which sometimes, uh, you know, those of us in in North America kind of forget that we're also part of a community. And what's been really cool about the current crisis is the struggle towards finding and contributing to your sense of community identity. Um, So, you know, I think there's kind of two pieces of this is, is yes, we are cut off from our usual coping methods, you know, which for many of us is socialization, getting outside, um, you know, maybe taking classes, going to the gym, um, seeing our friends just hanging out and, and appreciating this dialogue and back and forth that we have with people that helps us discover ourselves and and we're sheltering in place now and we're facing a lot of our thoughts and a lot of our feelings and there's not a whole lot of control you know humans crave certainty and we don't have that right now and and so what I think is really important for us to do on the individual level is to question our thoughts and to question our reality. You know, I, I belong to this school of cognitive theory, which says we have, let's say, 40 to 50,000 thoughts a day. Not all of them are going to be rational, but they're going to be automatic. They're going to happen. We're going to think things all the time. And we need to take a step back and assess the value of our thoughts and start to filter them and, and to ask ourselves, you know, what evidence do I have for this thought that feels harmful or negative that affects my self-worth? You know, is there a way to critically evaluate my thoughts and to create a better sense of self and self-identity? And that's really actually quite difficult for us to do because we tend to believe what we think and not question it, but feelings and thoughts are not always facts. So I think on the individual level, we need to start doing that because humans are ever evolving. And, and this is a moment, whether we're at home, you know, or we're essential workers, 
we're still able and capable of growth and change. And again, the second piece of that is community identity is how are we able to work towards altruism in our communities, compassion, connecting to others that may have different views than us. I mean, this is uh, a deeply painful time and I, I certainly do not want to um, minimize that in any way because there's pain and death and suffering uh, and resource issues and healthcare issues and uh, a lot of my clients are really struggling with all of the uncertainty of life. And yet it also presents a tremendous capacity for growth on many, many levels. And we're going to take a brief pause right now to hear a word from our sponsor. Introducing the newest member of the Vox Life family. REMPatch with OST, optimized sleep technology, balances your REM and deep sleep stages to encourage rejuvenation of the mind and body. No drugs, no hangover, just a great night's sleep. Visit dianedinkmeyer.voxlife.com for information. That's dianedinkmeyer.voxlife.com. All Vox Life products are available in the UK, Canada, and the USA. I've been traveling quite a bit, quite extensively over the past 10 years. And um, a while back, I, I did a project with the United Nations. They sent me to Fiji mm. to work with a group of about 30 uh, mostly indigenous Fijians. Um, some of them were, um, you know, Indo-Fijians or Chinese Fijians, and, and there were mixes. Um, but it was very interesting to go into... A country that is is not first world mm. and and experience the youth voice um and this was not that long ago this was i think four or five years ago um and i didn't find many differences huh. i think there are some yeah. inherent cultural differences but i think the the process of questioning one's narrative and the process of of striving for what one conceives as potentially better mm. uh, is a universal human condition. Mm. And I think the cultural sort of um, blanket that's, that surrounds it may, may be defining. Yes. Um, you know, I certainly experienced it in one way in the U.S. I haven't been back in the United States for almost a year. And I'm currently living in Spain. And the, the difference is... is powerful even between europe and the u.s um the first guest i had on on the lost traveler was my father who was uh he used to work for the u.s information agency which was sort of the propaganda wing uh, of the u.s government back in the 60s mm. and 70s before there was a mcdonald's outside the u.s wow. remember those days <laughs> i'm barely old right. enough to remember those days but i do and um, and and that exposed me to the world in a way that a lot of people don't really get to experience. And at a young age, I became aware that there are universal uh, qualities to our humanity. 
Um, and this is where the, the conversation of, of life skills comes in. There are what, 7.7 billion people on the planet, yeah. right? The, 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 the life skills that I'm talking with and working with and, and advising in, mentoring in, um, are, are universal. Every single one of us on the planet learns communication skills. We learn hygiene. We learn nutrition. We learn trade and, and financial co- literacy, uh, sexual literacy, um, you know, grief. There, there are all of these qualities that every culture, no matter if you're removed from most of the world and living in, in you know, a hut in the middle of the rainforest, or if you're living in a penthouse apartment uh, in, in Manhattan, you're learning the same skills. The question is not whether we learn these skills. It's how well do we learn them? Mm. At what competency level do we learn them? And for the most part, and this is on a global scale, um, the work of imparting life skills, these essential life skills, has fallen on the shoulders almost exclusively of parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and most parents I know, admittedly, are not experiencing huge proficiencies in many of these <laughs> life skills. Um, you know, and so, and so we turn to schools, right? We turn to teachers and classes, but, but very few schools will hire professionals in, in life skills development to teach children. We invest a lot in math and science and language mm. arts and so forth, but almost nothing in essential life skills. And then we introduce our children to independence in the world with a very, very uh, weak toolkit. Mm-hmm. And so I feel, as a life skills professional and mentor, I feel a responsibility to bring those of us, yourself included, together who are, who are experts. We're not experts in everything, right? But we have competencies and we have deficiencies, okay. just like everyone. Um, but... But the things that we are most competent in, we need to be talking about. We need to be saying, this isn't rocket science. This is actually, there are tools Mm. in order to build your competency in these skills that we all of us learn. And so these skills across the board, whether, you know, it's a first world, second world or, or third world country. Um, are applicable. I think that's that's really, um, yeah, it's a point well taken. I, I think you're right. Culture shapes that narrative. You know, you know that I'm from Canada originally. All my family's in Canada. And how they are approaching, the, I think the life skills that they're using to approach the crisis are different than, um, yep. different and the same, you know, different iterations of the same concepts. Um, and and I, I can see that in how my parents and how my brother and sister and their families are approaching even school closures and um, the discussion about community safety that parents are sharing with their children there. Um, anecdotally, of course, this is just from my own personal experience is different than some of the discussions we're having here in the United States about personal freedoms. And, and so, you know, what each culture chooses to focus on may be different, but the core skills of adaptivity and, and health and achievement, I think are the same And I I think what's, again, kind of fascinating about what's happening right now is, you know, you have parents at home that um, are are doing distance learning, that are 
really trying to juggle so much, you know, that are maybe working full time and they have kids at different grade levels and they're navigating different apps and they are cooking and cleaning and they're stuck in the house and they're so totally overwhelmed. And yet they are gracefully, clumsily, authentically managing and not giving themselves the credit. And and this is where you see the narrative coming in in a way that can actually really help is instead of saying I'm a bad parent or I really lost it at my kids today. And of course, you know, social media amplifies this and you see memes going around like, oh, won't you be kind to your children? Don't let them see you struggle. I actually think that like the reverse is, is true is our kids need to see us struggling right now. It's okay to model that this is new for us. In fact, we had this conversation very early on with my my six-year-old who's kind of a highly existential dude himself. And, you know, the conversation I would have with him mm-hmm. is going to be different than my, my other children who are not quite as self-aware. But, you know, really saying to him, listen, dad and I haven't done this before. None of us have done this before. And isn't that kind of cool that we're all just figuring this out? And isn't that kind of scary? And doesn't that mean that we all need to be a little more forgiving of ourselves and of each other? And and actually practicing what we preach, instead of just turning around and saying, you know, I lost it at my kid. I can't do this. I won't do this. The reality is we wake up the next morning after a terrible day and we pull ourselves up and we do it again because there's no other choice but to keep on going And if we keep on going, then we need to practice that self-compassion and question, are we really bad parents? Are we really unproductive? Just to insert that thread of maybe what I'm doing right now is okay and is going to help me grow and, and transform who I am in the future. And we'll be right back right after this. Twenty-first-century life skills warrant twenty-first-century education. Every human being is born into a classroom, each of us given the same homework, the same core assignments. Personal care skills, emotional literacy, financial literacy, environmental literacy. These and other essential life skills are unique, learned and used by each of us every day of our lives. Indeed, they are the common thread in our humanity core to individuals and the communities they construct, surviving and thriving. Raising the bar on life skills education for all. This is the mission of Parenting 2.0. Visit www.parenting2pt0.org for more information. You know, our parents are closer to the generations that have been through this. Our families who who immigrated to North America, you, yeah. you and I both come from uh, Eastern European Jewish backgrounds. And, um, and I wonder if generationally there's a difference in the perspective on how we cope um, you know, our parents that were raised in the in the 40s and 50s, the post-depression era, if you're, mm-hmm. you know, 
talking about Americans, but um, uh, or, or United States because you're American too. <laughs> People forget that, um, but um, you know. But I think there's a similar experience. Um, you know, my my great great grandparents immigrated to Canada, and and then came to the United States uh, later. Um, but I, I wonder if those of us that are second and third generation ever pause to, to reflect on the skills that our ancestors were compelled to, to deal with in, in much the same way they were, they were facing a new frontier just as we are. Wow, That's, that's really powerful. Um, you know, I, I certainly think much of my narrative has been shaped by, the struggle of the Jewish people, you know, the, the persecution. Yeah. And um, in fact, I've always identified almost more with the cultural tradition of Judaism than the religious, because I tend to think, you know, religiously, I, I kind of think that we all believe in the same thing when it comes right down to it. But again, you know, much like those life skills, it's, it's that cultural narrative that shapes. And so, you know, I, I think in my childhood, there was this sense of, well, there are, there are a couple lessons that I took very clearly that I'm so grateful for, which was one, the value of education. And that doesn't necessarily have to be traditional school-based learning, but it's the, the importance right. of open-mindedness and accessing information and learning and questioning and being critical. I mean, certainly the Jewish tradition is one of Talmudic scholarship and argument and narrative and dialogue. Um, and weaving together a story of resistance and resilience. And, and so I think that really, that first lesson really profoundly shaped how I come into the world. And then, of course, you know, being a social worker, um, just having that social justice orientation. But I, I do think there's something to be said about these kind of grand challenges that generations face. And, you know, early in the crisis, um, I was really struggling. And my brother said to me, Erica, historically speaking, we've had such an easy life. We've had, you know, we, we have a Gulf War and, and we had 9-11. I mean, there were certainly events that caused us fear or to question, but, but life didn't shift in such a way as it is now. Like this is the first time that universally we have experienced this, this type of crisis. And we're really lucky that it's mm -hmm. taken us this long. Um, but our parents' generation and the generations before that, I mean, theirs was a world that I think was in, in more turmoil and was deeply divided and certainly didn't have the resources that we have today. Um, and I, I do think that shapes how we were parented. Absolutely. And there are echoes of that. We still feel the, the, the ripple effects, you know. Um, I think that the, the cultural um, challenges that our ancestors, meaning our Jewish ancestors based in, in Europe and, and prior, um, have actually made me feel more sympathetic to other cultural religious mm. backgrounds, um, you know, who are facing oppression and, and uh, persecution yeah. today. Um, you know, and we're seeing a resurgence of that you know, uh, mm -hmm. anti-Semitism and, and, you know, violence against mm -hmm. Chinese people now and, and, or people perceived right. to be Chinese just because right. they're, right. Um, you know, our, our Muslim brothers mm -hmm. and sisters, same thing. Um, you know, 
know, we see the struggle in, in Israel and Palestine. It's just, it's, it seems to be history repeating itself. And, and so what I always reflect on in terms of my own narrative, my own biography is, you know, reflecting on who is in my DNA, right? Every part of me is informed by someone who came before every passion I have, every talent that I have, every interest, every gift, uh, every challenge I have, I inherited. And, and so to, to sort of conjure my ancestors and to reflect back on them, invite them in and, and let them inform me now during this new frontier that we, like you say, have, we're universally facing this. It doesn't matter what religion or what culture you come from. Universally, we are experiencing this together. I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we can find a way back to, to our universal humanity in, in, in compassion. But I think, I think um, the research that I've been doing into my own DNA and my own genealogy over the past couple of years especially has really opened my eyes and and given me tools that I didn't think mm. were possible to glean during mm. this time. It's actually not only looking forward toward a, an uncertain future, but looking to the past when our ancestors were looking at right. their uncertain future. They could never have imagined right. this world. They could never have imagined this world. And look what mm. they did. And you know what? I think um, what's unique about this time is the global connectedness that we have that our ancestors did not have. And what's become really vital for me is to make sure that I'm having conversations across gaps that were not possible before. You know, I think much of today's political climate and adversity comes from the fact that we have access now to others' ideas and thoughts in a way that we didn't before when People, you know, again, having a world war where there was a clear group of Nazis and everyone knew that there were people that had these fascist and anti-Semitic beliefs, you know, that was one thing. But in these subtle pockets and these areas of the world and even across America where people have different life experiences and different life narratives, we have never had access to that before. And how, um, God, how humbling is it to realize that your point of view is not the universal point of view but then how powerful is it <laughs> that we can actually reach across those divides and have conversations? And, you know, one area of my work that I that I do a good deal of is reproductive rights and injustice. Um, and based on my own experience of having to end a wanted pregnancy due to a very severe fetal anomaly. Um, and so what I try to do is I, I encounter a lot of pro-life uh, activists and uh, I encounter a lot of judgment and it's really easy for me to just clap back and to get upset and defensive and hurt based on my own experience, which I certainly do. But then I take a breath and I really try to engage with people whose worldviews I don't understand and who cannot possibly understand what it must have been like for me to have to make this decision and don't want to talk about the details of what happened to us because it's so painful and to find ways to welcome them, just like we welcome grief and negative thoughts, instead of pushing them away, which is, again, this kind of natural human condition, I feel bad, I don't want to feel bad, I'm going to push it away, and it's going to pop up somewhere else. If we actually right. welcome 
dissent and we question with curiosity, hard feelings, bad feelings, different points of view that hurt us. And we don't accept them, but we allow space for them. You can cultivate some really powerful shared humanity. I have a dear friend who is like me in every way. We met on Twitter. Um, you know, she is a licensed mental health clinician. She is a mom of four, a really good woman, and she's passionately pro-life, passionately pro-life. So she's like, I think mm. of her in a way as like the, 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 not the anti-Erica, cause she's a great person, but she's, she's like the flip side of me. And right. we have had the most right. amazing supportive conversations, um, and actually come together a few times to show others how, we disagree fundamentally on abortion rights, but we also agree on a lot of stuff. We agree on the value of women. We agree on having better right. access to prenatal care. There's so many things that we could agree on. Um, and it doesn't solve the, the fundamental, you know, ethical problem that I have with restricting abortion, but it creates bridges mm -hmm. for conversation. And I don't think that the folks that came before us had this opportunity to do that. Your generous sponsorship and individual support of the Lost Traveler podcast benefits the Lost Travelers Club, a charitable project under the fiscal sponsorship of United Charitable, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. The Lost Travelers Club focuses primarily on the needs of parents who have outlived their beloved children. We recently launched our new Brain Candy Project Wing, providing art supplies to children still struggling with critical or terminal health-related conditions. We hope to raise enough funds to launch Brain Candy, an arts and literature magazine created by and for these young people. Find out more at www.braincandy.online. Thank you. Nor the freedom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I've lived in, in mm. communist countries and I've lived in countries where parents could not trust their children, nor could children trust their parents. If somebody spoke out against the government, the regime that was in place, um, they would be informed upon by mm. close family mm. members or friends and neighbors and mm. be imprisoned or worse. This was a reality and still is a reality in, in certain places in the world. I think that that's part of this, this reflection. Um, I have many, many dear friends who are on both sides of uh, the issue of abortion. Um, you know, I think essentially, I, 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 I lament that it, the movement yeah. is called pro-life because it presumes that, you know, people who are, are pro reproductive rights exactly. are not pro-life. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it is semantics. A lot of it is if two people were to sit down and have a cup of coffee and just talk about, you know, individually, you know, what, what they mean uh, and why, um, that, could, that could be a game changer. I have dear friends and family who are on both sides of, of whatever political uh, 
party or or philosophy is is you know is du jour and um you know i i see friends and family in such a constant state of anger and turmoil and uh frustration and it seems that all they consume through the media through this gift of technology that we have are the things that are inflaming the division without really engaging on a personal level with the with individuals who may have a, a different perspective and you know, just as we want to feel validated in our perspective, they want to feel validated in their perspective. And so how do we, as you say, how do we find the common ground? Because there is inevitably common ground yes, between yes, all actually, of us. I think the common ground is not what comes easily for humans, which is to tolerate ambiguity and to tolerate the gray in life. And I, yes. I think that's because you're God, your, your point about, about language and semantics is so well taken. I think so much of this is about inflammatory language that makes a great soundbite um, that really, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've thought a lot about this language. You know, I would be hurting my friend's feelings if I called it anti-choice. That would be offensive to her. Um, and, you know, but pro-life is also right. not, doesn't work for me. And, you know, people will call me pro-abortion and that's upsetting to me because yeah. I'm not pro-abortion for all, right? Like it's, but here's the problem with language is language is binary. Right. It's black and white. You know, um, it's funny. This is a little bit of a digression, but I remember when I was doing research into near-death experiences and people were telling me that they went to places when they died that were beyond language. There was just no, and this is common in the near-death experience research is it's ineffable. Like there's no way to capture the beauty of the colors or thought happens without language. It's a, a state of knowing. And that I think is so amazing because we live in a concrete world and we live in a world where black and white uncertainty is what makes us feel comfortable and safe. And yet, if we can tolerate the complexity and the ambiguity and the gray of all of our current situations, then I think we'd be doing much better. But it's it's like this huge evolutionary challenge for us is to actually really trying to find the common ground in very uncertain, very muddy situations and uh you know when you have a 30 second sound bite you, you can't do that nor do you want to necessarily do that well and yeah you see people on social media saying if you say this that and the other you're you might as well unfriend me now <laughs> i see that so often i just want to tear what's left of my hair out because i feel like what a, a sad opportunity missed, mm -hmm. right? To to engage with another human being who may, there may be gray area that you don't quite understand, that you're defining a whole individual, a whole complex individual or group of individuals or party or religion based on those those little boxes. You know, I I had uh, this this vision when I was in high school that I wanted to create a T-shirt. Uh, that said too big for the box. <laughs> I I still may do that. It is my Skype name actually. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that it's it's you oh, know it's time goodness. to evolve. This is the perfect time. Perfect mm. time to evolve. And if we start there, each of us recognizing that we have the capacity within ourselves mm. to evolve, right? Mm. Then that could start us all on a path of of uh of growth and of connection 
um, and recognition, but it all yes, starts and, with the and narrative. I want to say evolution takes billions of years, right? Like there's also this idea of uh, getting things done quick and dirty and instant gratification. And yet we know that any real change in life, any real growth, is very slow and incremental. And I've learned this at the institutional level as an administrator. I remember coming into hospitals being like, we're going to change how intakes are done around here. And then realizing that I had to start with a forms committee and, you know, the language of the forms committee and the forms committee proposal. And like, oh man, this is not just going to be Erica coming in and sweeping the papers off the table and saying things are going to change. But it's it's actually really That's so right. true that change is intentional. It's reflective. It's often painful. Um, you know, we sometimes have to get sick to get better, which is such a profound narrative for right now. Um, that oftentimes the stimulus for for change is very painful growth. And uh, so we have to really be tolerant, which again is so hard. I don't I don't profess that this is easy at all for me. Um, and I don't profess that I I do it successfully all the time. But having the awareness that we're gonna have to take a step back from being reactive and slowly, slowly try to integrate and really hear what others are saying and where they're coming from if we want to evolve. And you can lead a horse mm -hmm. to water, <laughs> but you can't make them drink. And, and, and that's, that's where I, I contend that that change begins with the individual all, the best I can hope to do is, as you say, be reflective. I can I can be absolutely uh, uh, certain in my own convictions and in the goodness and truth of what I believe. And those people who are going to resonate with that frequency are going to resonate with it. And some mm -hmm. people are going to change the channel. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not everybody has to see through my lens. And so, but it, but it all starts with the individual. It yeah. starts with introspection. It starts with, as you know, as we say, mm. questioning your narrative. Who am I now? Who have I been? Who have I evolved into? Mm. And who do I want to become? Amen. Right? We, each of us has a hundred percent survival rate. 100% survival rate out of mm -hmm. everything that's happened mm -hmm. to us in our life, including mm -hmm. this, right? The chances are pretty good. The odds are in our favor that we're going to get through this and that we're going to come out yeah. somehow improved. And so I don't fear the future, even though it's uncertain. The, right. the future is always uncertain. It was uncertain mm -hmm. for our ancestors, that's for sure, mm -hmm. right? And we're made of all that stuff. And, and so, you know, this is, this is the beginning of a conversation. And if there are three takeaways from this episode, what would you say you would want people to take away? Great question. I would say, number one, tolerate the gray, you know, like tolerate the, the move away, reject black and white and move towards uncertainty and ambiguity, as hard as that is. I know that's a big challenge for a lot of people, but I say that's a big takeaway. 
um, I would say, question your thoughts. Don't believe everything you think that, you know, just because you have a thought doesn't mean that the rest of the world is thinking. And it also doesn't mean that it's true about yourself. And I think third is uh, build bridges to conversations. Please build bridges. Please invoke the shared humanity. And as you said, you know, root yourself back to your ancestors. Believe in the common good and resilience of people and try to build bridges instead of burning them. <laughs> Dr. Erica Goldblatt Hyatt, it's been such a pleasure reconnecting with you. And thank you for being a guest on The Lost Traveler. Oh, I pleasure. really appreciate it. I cannot it. wait to share this conversation with my friends and colleagues because I think it was a good one. <laughs> thank you. I do too. I do too. Well, we'll have to have you back Absolutely. because there's so much more to you. talk I about. Love, I love I love you and I'd love to. And I, I thank you for all you do for the, for your community as well. You've been listening to The Lost Traveler with Henry Cameron Allen. For more information, please visit www.henryallen.org. Thanks so much for tuning in, and let's all keep striving for a better world. Thank you.